Let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. What an absolute thrill it is to be a preacher on Easter morning. I mean, Faye and Drew would back this up, and Jeff too. It is an absolute thrill. It's better than being Irish on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> it's better than being Sergio Garcia at the Masters. Not as lucrative, certainly. But the long-term benefits are much better. Being a preacher on Easter morning is even better than being a lady Gamecock during March Madness with a whole lot less tension. The news is never better, never more important than on Easter morning. The great New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd has written, the resurrection is the epicenter of belief. I think that epicenter is the first word in your, in your notes. The resurrection is the epicenter of belief. It is not a belief that grew up within the church. It is the belief around which the church itself grew up. And Billy Graham has declared, if I were an enemy of Christianity, I would aim right at the resurrection because that's the heart of Christianity. Easter is huge. Easter is huge. Because of the resurrection, victory has been declared over death and sin. Because of the resurrection, the living Christ has been loosed upon the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because of the resurrection, we know that good will finally triumph over evil. Because of the resurrection, death has lost its power to terrorize Christians. And because of the resurrection, sadness is not the dominant mood at Christian funerals. Yes, there's sadness, but the sadness is enveloped by victory. Now, all of that is the good news, the real good news of Easter. But we live in a culture, folks, that has a hard time hearing that good news. And part of the reason is because we are bombarded constantly by false news. Yeah, the politicians call it fake news. I prefer to call it false news because often the social media and many television channels distort the truth constantly in order to spin their own slanted, prejudiced picture of reality. And the net result of all that distortion is that there are many Americans who no longer believe there's any such thing as absolute truth. Many Americans have become so jaded and skeptical that they're almost inoculated against the real good news. And therefore, when the good news of the resurrection of Jesus is declared, there are some of them who say, ah, that's just too good to be true. To be completely honest, some of Jesus' disciples reacted in that same way. From the very beginning, some doubted, not just Thomas, others too, 
doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead. Therefore, this morning, even as we celebrate the central fact of our faith, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, let's be considerate of the doubters and maybe assist them toward faith. So let's turn to Matthew 28 to find out what happened on that first Easter morning. Two women named Mary came to the tomb about dawn. Before the women arrived, there had been a violent earthquake in that specific area, and an angel dressed in brilliant white had rolled away that massive heavy stone that blocked the door to the tomb. And the angel had then taken a seat on it. The women had brought spices to anoint the body. Catch that now. They were expecting to find a body, not a risen Lord. And here is a clear sign that this account from Matthew is not false news, that it's authentic. Because let me tell you, if this had been made up by the early church, the women would have come to the tomb expecting to find a risen Christ, not a body. So this is proof of authenticity. The angel said to the women, Jesus has risen from the dead. Go and tell his disciples that he will meet them in Galilee. Here's another sign that we're not dealing in false news, that this is real and authentic. In the Middle East of the first century, the status of women was just a little bit above that of slaves. They were virtually property to either a spouse or, or the nearest male relative. Incidentally, their status is very similar to what prevails today in many Muslim-majority countries. Therefore, if this story had been made up by the early church, there is no way they would have allowed women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection. In that day, first century culture, the credibility of women was regarded as so low, they were not allowed to testify in courtrooms. And so, this is bound to be authentic because the women were the first witnesses. And nothing, no movement, no religion has ever elevated the status of women as much as Christianity, thank God. As the women hurried away, they came face to face with the risen Christ. They fell at his feet. They grabbed his feet and worshiped him. And by the way, ghosts don't have feet you can grab. This was no ghost. Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell his disciples that I will meet them in Galilee. You know what was the central truth of Easter morning. The tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. Empty. Because let me tell you, if his enemies could have found a body, they would have produced it in order to rebut the rumors of resurrection. But there was no body to be found. It is a glorious truth that today the tomb of Confucius is occupied. The tomb of Buddha is occupied. The tomb of Mohammed is occupied. But thanks be to God, the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. Despite all the good news, the purveyors of false news were already at work. The day after the crucifixion, the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, the high priest, they remembered what Jesus' followers had forgotten. 
that he had predicted he would rise from the dead. They remembered that. So they went to the Roman governor and secured permission to have the tomb of Jesus sealed and guards posted. And verse 4 of chapter 28 tells us that when the earthquake shook that specific area, the guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. And then verse 11 tells us that after the guards had come to their senses, they reported back to their bosses, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders, told them exactly what had happened. And those priests and Jewish leaders quickly substituted false news for the real good news. They bribed the guards and said to them, look, you go tell everybody that while you were guarding his tomb, you fell asleep. And while you slept, Jesus' disciples came and stole the body away. You tell them that. And if you get unmasked, to use a modern term, by somebody, we will cover for you and make sure that you're taken care of. Even today, the real news of Jesus' resurrection is doubted by a whole lot of people. Now, the current false news version goes like this. They say that Jesus was just an inspired moral teacher, but nothing more. The revisionists say that his death was just a tragedy that served no good purpose. That he was killed simply because he ran afoul of the powers that be, the government. In other words, he was just one more in a long line of martyrs who've died for good causes. They don't believe that Jesus' body left the tomb. They've got a version of resurrection, but it's puny and pitiful. They say that Jesus' spirit continues to inspire Christians in just the same way that Abe Lincoln's spirit inspires Americans. And folks who believe this false news must find Easter a mighty drab day. Now, we must reach out to doubters, just as Jesus did. In Acts 1, verse 3, we read that the risen Christ gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, and we should do the same. Our gracious Lord does not reject doubters who are genuine seekers. Honest doubt is not an enemy of faith. Sometimes it's a friend. Though, good, though false news cannot stand up to scrutiny, Real good news can. And if a genuine seeker were to ask me, Brother Bill, what are the primary evidences that Jesus actually arose? I would list the following three. First, the incredible growth of the early church. The incredible growth of the early church. I mean, at the time Jesus was crucified, 30 A.D., his total following consisted of about 120 disheartened, discouraged, defeated men who were so fearful that they were hiding behind locked doors. Yet within 50 years, there were thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus who were shouting the good news from the housetops all across the Mediterranean world. Something cataclysmic had to happen to cause that change. I can't believe anything less than a resurrection could do it. 
The second evidence of the resurrection, the willingness of Jesus' disciples to die for that belief. You don't die for a hoax. You do not die for false news. And yet, over the ensuing years, virtually all of Jesus' disciples were executed for their faith. Legend has it that St. Peter was crucified, and just before he was crucified, he said, crucify me upside down because I don't deserve to die as my Savior died. Some of the disciples were beheaded. Some were thrown into the Roman Colosseum with the wild animals. Any one of those disciples could have saved his life if he had just denied the resurrection. Nobody dies for a hoax. Nobody dies for false news. They did. They died for the truth. Christians are dying today. In fact, in the last 100 years, more Christians have died for their faith than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Even in a communist country like China, despite all the opposition, the church is booming. There, a hostile government, an atheist government, forces churches to take crosses down from their steeples as if that could stop the movement. And yet the church is, that may be the fastest growing church in the world, in China. Back in 1949, there were only one million Protestant Christians in China. Today, there are well over 60 million. The risen Christ is very much at work. The third evidence of Jesus' resurrection is what he is doing today. Through the power of the Holy Spirit... The risen Christ is changing lives, saving souls, lifting burdens, transforming the world. And in the final analysis, in the final analysis, the evidence for resurrection comes down to you. Does your spirit agree with God's spirit that you're a child of God? Do you sense that the risen Christ is alive in your heart? For millions of Christians, the answer is yes. Now that we have looked at the primary evidences for resurrection, let's move on to the heart of the matter. What difference does the resurrection make for you and me? And I want to offer three answers, and there will be a test. First, death has been humbled. Death has been humbled. In America today, it's a sad fact that there are few words regarded as more vulgar than one five-letter word, death, D-E-A-T-H. You're not supposed to say that in polite company. If you must refer to the subject, talk about passing away. Don't mention it. America is terrified by death. If you want to break up a cocktail party, you just drift around and ask a few people, have you thought about your upcoming death? I'll do it. They'll start heading to the doors. What a contrast one finds among Christians. Most are not terrified or even intimidated by death. That does not mean that we befriend or deny death. No, death is the final enemy. Not created by God, but a result of sin. 
And yes, all of us dread the possibility that we could lose some of our faculties before dying. And yes, all of us dread the possibility that we might experience great pain in dying. But we know that on the other side of death is heaven. We know that we are short-termers here on earth and that this is a prelude to the main event. In a former church that I served, there was a gentleman named Hayward. He was in his mid-80s. And I remember I was visiting him one day. We were sitting in the backyard, in fact, and in the course of the conversation, he said, Brother Bill, um, I want you to conduct my funeral whenever the time comes. And without choosing my words very carefully, I said, uh, Hayward, I can't think of anybody's funeral I would rather conduct than yours. <laughs> and I didn't mean it like that. And, and so, so I tried again and I said, Hayward, it will be a privilege to bury you. Uh, I should have left well enough alone. Well, he and I both had a good laugh together. And as I left his house that day, I marveled at the comfortable non-intimidated way this elderly gentleman dealt with his coming death and his funeral. Why was he so unafraid? It was because of Jesus' resurrection. There was a woman in Florida who, was, who had a malignant tumor on her face and her physician told her that there was a treatment available but that it would be painful and it could cause some disfigurement. And then he added, I must tell you that it is not a cure, but it could buy you some time. She thought about it and said, Doctor, I appreciate that, but I don't want the treatments. And somewhat alarmed, he said, I must remind you that this illness is terminal. And with a sweet smile and a steady faith, she said, Doctor, I didn't come here to stay. I didn't come here to stay. Nobody can say that who hasn't an assurance about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That kind of faith just humbles death. It brings it to its knees. It, it robs it of all its terror. And that's why St. Paul could say death has been swallowed up in victory. Here's the second significant fact about Easter. It means that heaven is our destination. It leads from the first. And in fact, we don't even have to enter the uh, address of heaven in our GPS, no. Now, if we just repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ as, as Savior and Lord, we are, we are on the way. Jesus said, I am the way. If you know me, you're on the way. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are heaven bound. When I moved to Myrtle Beach in 1991, I hardly had time to move my books into the office before we got an emergency call at the office. Uh, word came to us that a member of the church named Jean uh, had been uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and the prognosis was very bad. The secretary called Jean and asked if it'd be okay if the pastor came by and she said yes. Well, on my way, I... <laughs> I prayed and thought, I, she, Jean and I had never met. And how in the world could I convey some kind of comfort to this woman in this awful hour? I rang the doorbell and Jean answered. I saw no sign of tears. 
In fact, there was a smile on her face. And in the ensuing conversation, I hardly had a chance to get in a word edgewise. She sat me down, patted me on the hand, and said, Now, Pastor, don't you worry about me. I'm getting ready to take a trip, and I don't even have to pack a suitcase. And when I arrive, I'm going to have a brand new wardrobe waiting on me, picked out by Jesus. So you tell the folks at the church that I'm just fine, but pastor, if you would like to say a prayer for us, I would be happy about that. As I left Jean's home and drove back to the church, I just marveled at the, the way the assurance of heaven brings peace even in the face of death. Here's the third significant fact about Easter. The victory of good over evil in this world is assured. God is going to have the last word with his world. And indeed, St. Paul gave us a preview of how our history will end. He wrote, then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You know, today in America, there's a whole lot of anxiety out there. For one thing, we know that terrorists can strike virtually anywhere at any time. We know that in recent years, the number of democracies has been declining and the number of authoritarian governments has been increasing and we Christians are not naive Pollyannas who just pretend all is well. No, we read the newspapers. We're realists. We know that evil out there is real and dangerous. Uh, we, we, we know that recently weapons of mass destruction were used on innocent people in Syria. We know that North Korea is trying to threaten the world with nuclear weapons. We know it. But we know something else that the secular pagans don't know. We know that faith is stronger than doubt, that hope triumphs over despair, and that love overcomes hate. And in addition, God has already told us through this holy book how the history is going to end and which side is going to win. St. Paul wrote, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've read the final chapter. Things may get worse, but we know how it will be in the end. Almost 30 years ago, an event happened in Czechoslovakia that was sort of a small preview of what it will be like when Jesus returns. It was the day when communism fell in Czechoslovakia. Uh, the people knew that the evil system was collapsing and the climax came on November 27, 1989. The word had been spread all across Czechoslovakia that on that day at noon, everybody was to leave their homes, leave their workplaces, pour out into the streets. And word had been spread that every bell in every church was to ring. They said that bells rang that had not rung in 45 years. The atmosphere was electric. Grown men cried with joy. And Dr. Wilhelm Schneeberger, pastor in Prague, 
said that for the first time in 45 years, his congregation had permission to post a sign in front of their church. And they posted a sign with just four words on it. The Lamb has won. The Lamb has won. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had prevailed over the evil empire. And at the end of world history, when the Lord Jesus returns, the headline will be, The Lamb has won. So if someone asks you the real significance of Easter, I want you to give them three great truths. And let's repeat them right now out loud so I'm sure you have received them. The first is, death has been humbled. The second, heaven is our destination. And the third, the victory of good over evil in this world is assured. At the close of this service, in lieu of the benediction, our choir is going to present the majestic Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. And when they do that, it will bring back memories for me. Because uh, when I was serving in Memphis at our church there, the choir presented the Hallelujah Chorus twice each year on the Sunday before Christmas and on Easter Sunday. And there was a young man in that church na named John Michael. He had Down syndrome and was severely handicapped. But he had an awesome love for God and other people. I really don't think John Michael had the capacity for anger or resentment. He just exuded love. He and his family were faithful members of that church. They sat back near the back of the sanctuary. And whenever the choir would present the Hallelujah Chorus, John Michael would be so moved that he would move into the middle aisle and pretend to be directing the choir. And the congregation all knew and loved him. And as they watched, there was hardly a dry eye in the house. I have a feeling that if I were to ask the Lord, of all the worship services we presented that entire year, which one brought you the most joy? I think the Lord Jesus would smile and say, oh, that's easy. It was when John Michael stood in the middle aisle and directed the Hallelujah Chorus. John Michael died several years ago and I want to tell you the real news, the good news, not the false news, the good news about John Michael. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, John Michael is in heaven today with a gloriously perfected mind and body. And I'm pretty sure that when the heavenly choir sings the hallelujah chorus, the Lord Jesus passes the baton to John Michael. For 20 centuries, Christian people all over the world have greeted Easter morning by having their worship leader declare in every language under heaven, he has risen, and the people respond, he has risen indeed. And so here today, Easter 2017, Mount Horeb United Methodist Church, I declare to you, 
He is risen, and you respond. He is risen indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.